Chapter Twelve of The Frozen Pirate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Seidel. The Frozen Pirate by W. Clark Russell. Chapter Twelve A Lonely Night. I had a pipe of my own in my pocket. I fetched a small block of black tobacco that was in the pantry, and with some trouble, for it was as hard and dry as glass, chipped off a bowlful and fell a puffing with all the satisfaction of a hardened lover of tobacco who has long been denied his favorite relish. The punch diffused a pleasing glow through my frame. The tobacco was lulling the heat of the fire very soothing. The hearty meal I had eaten had also marvelously invigorated me, so that I found my mind in a posture to justly and rationally consider my condition, and to reason out such probabilities as seemed to be attached to it. First of all, I reflected that, by the usual operation of natural laws, this vast seat of thrilling and thick-ribbed ice, in which the schooner lay bound, was steadily travelling to the northward, where, in due course, it would dissolve, though that would not happen yet. But as it advanced, so it would carry me nearer to the pathways of ships using these seas, and any day might disclose a sail near enough to observe such signals of smoke or flag as I might best contrive. But supposing no opportunity of this kind to offer, then I ought to be able to find in the vessel materials fit for the construction of a boat, if, indeed, I met not with a pinnace of her own stowed under the main hatch, for there was certainly no boat on deck. Nay, my meditations carried me even further. This was the winter season of the southern hemisphere, but presently the sun would be coming my way, whilst the ice, on the other hand, floated towards him. If by the wreck and dissolution of the island the schooner was not crushed, she must be released, in which case, providing she was tight and my brief inspection of her bottom showed nothing wrong with her that was visible through the shroud of snow, I should have a stout ship under me in which I would be able to lie hove to, or even make shift to sailor if the breeze came from the south and thus take my chance of being sighted and discovered. Much. I had almost said everything, depended on the quantity of provisions I should find here, and particularly on the stock of coal, for I feared I must perish if I had not a fire. But there was the hole to be explored yet. The navigation of these waters must have been anticipated by the men of the schooner, who were sure to make handsome provision for the cold, and the surer if, as I fancied, they were Spaniards. Certainly, they might have exhausted their stock of coal, but I could not persuade myself of this, since the heap in the corner of the cook-room somehow or other was suggestive of a store behind. I knew not yet whether more of the crew lay in the forecastle, but so far I had encountered four men only. If these were all, then I had a right to believe, grounding my fancy on the absence of boats, that most of the company had quitted the ship, and this they would have done early, a supposition that promised me a fair discovery of stores. 
Herein lay my hope. If I could prolong my life for three or four months, then, if the ice was not all gone, it would have advanced far north, serving me as a ship and putting me in the way of delivering myself, either by the sight of a sail, or by the schooner floating free, or by my construction of a boat. Thus I sat, musing, as I ventured to think, in a clear-headed way. Yet all the same I could not glance around without feeling as if I was bewitched. The red shining of the furnace ruddily gilded the cookhouse. Through the after-sliding door went the passage to the cabin in blackness. The storming of the wind was subdued into a strange moaning and complaining. Often through the body of the ship came the thrill of a sudden explosion, and haunting all was the sense of the dead men just without, the frozen desolation of the island, the mighty world of waters in which it lay. No, you can think of no isolation comparable to this, and I tremble as I review it, for under the thought of the enormous loneliness of that time my spirit must ever sink and break down. It was melancholy to be without time, so I pulled out the gold watch I had taken from the man on the rocks and wound it up, and, guessing at the hour, set the hands at half-past four. The watch ticked bravely. It was indeed a noble piece of mechanism, very costly and glorious with its jewels, and more than a hint as to the character of this schooner. And had there been nothing else to judge by, I should still have sworn to her by this watch. My pipe being emptied, I threw some more coals into the furnace, and putting a candle in the lantern went aft to take another view of the little cabins, in one of which I resolved to sleep for though the cook-room would have served me best whilst the fire burned, I reckoned upon it making a colder habitation when the furnace was black than those small compartments in the stern. The cold on the deck gushed down so bitingly through the open companion hatch that I was fain to close it. I mounted the steps, and with much ado shipped the cover and shut the door, by which, of course, the great cabin, as I call the room in which the two men were, was plunged in darkness. But the cold was not tolerable, and the parcels of candles in the larder rendered me indifferent to the gloom. On entering the passage in which were the doors of the berths, I noticed an object that had before escaped my observation. I mean a small trap-hatch, no bigger than a manhole, with a ring for lifting it midway down the lane. I suspected this to be the entrance to the lazarette, and putting both hands to the ring pulled the hatch up. I sniffed cautiously, fearing foul air, and then, sinking the lantern by the length of my arm, I peered down, and observed the outlines of casks, bales, cases of white wood, chests, and so forth. I dropped through the hole onto a cask, which left me my head and shoulders above the deck, and then, with the utmost caution, stooped and threw the lantern light around me. But the casks were not powder-barrels, which, perhaps, a little reflection might have led me to suspect, since it was not to be supposed that any man would stow his powder in the lazarette. As I was in the way of settling my misgivings touching the stock of food in the schooner, 
I resolved to push through with this business at once, and, fetching the chopper, went to work upon these barrels and chests. And very briefly I will tell you what I found. First, I dealt with a tierce that proved full of salt beef. There was a whole row of these tierces, and one sufficed to express the nature of the rest. There were upwards of thirty barrels of pork. One canvas bale I ripped open was full of hams, and of these bales I counted half a score. The white cases held biscuit. There were several sacks of peas, a number of barrels of flour, cases of candles, cheeses, a quantity of tobacco, not to mention a variety of jars of several shapes, some of which I afterwards found to contain marmalade and cicadas of different kinds. On knocking the head off one cask, I found it held a frozen body that by the light of the lantern looked as black as ink. I chipped off a bit, sucked it, and found it wine. I was so transported by the sight of this wonderful plenty that I fell upon my knees in an outburst of gratitude and gave hearty thanks to God for his mercy. There was no further need for me to dismally wonder whether I was to starve or no. Supposing the provision sweet, here was food enough to last me three or four years. I was so overjoyed and withal curious that I forgot about the time, and, flourishing the chopper, made the round of the lazarette, sampling its freight by individual instances, so that by the time I was tired I had enlarged the list I have given by discoveries of brandy, beer, oatmeal, oil, lemons, tongues, vinegar, rum, and eight or ten other matters, all stowed very bunglingly, and in so many different kinds of casks, cases, jars, and other vessels, as to dispose me to believe that several piratical rummagings must have gone to the creation of this handsome and plentiful stock of good things. Well, thought I, even if there be no more coal in the ship than what lies in the cookhouse, enough fuel is here, in the shape of casks, boxes, and the like, to thaw me provisions for six months, besides what I may come across in the hold along with the hammocks, bedding, boxes, and so forth in the forecastle, all which would be good to feed my fire with. This was a most comforting reflection, and I recollect springing out through the lazarette hatch with as spirited a caper as ever I had cut at any time in my life. I replaced the hatch cover, and having resolved upon the aftmost of the four cabins as my bedroom, entered it to see what kind of accommodation it would yield me. I hung up the lantern and looked into the cot that was slung athwartships, and spied a couple of rugs or blankets which I pulled out, having no fancy to lie under them. The deck was like an old clothes shop, or the wardrobe of a traveling troop of actors. From the confusion in this and the adjoining cabins, I concluded that there had been a rush at the last, a wild overhauling and flinging about of clothes for articles of more value hidden amongst them. But just as likely as not, the disorder merely indicated the slovenly indifference of plunderers to the fruit of a pillage that had overstocked them. The first garment I picked up was a cloak of a sort of silk material, richly furred and lined. 
All the buttons but one had been cut off, and that which remained was silver. I spread it in the cot, as it was a soft thing to lie upon. Then I picked up a coat, of the fashion you will see in Hogarth's engravings, the coat collar a broad fold and the cuffs to the elbow. This was as good as a rug, and I put it into the cot with the other. I inspected others of the articles on the deck, and among them recollect a gold-laced waistcoat of green velvet, two or three pairs of high-heeled shoes, a woman's yellow sock, several frizzled wigs, silk stockings, pumps, in fine, the contents of the trunks of some dandy passengers, long since gathered to their forefathers, no doubt, even if the gentlemen of this schooner had not then and there walked them overboard or split their windpipes. But, to be honest, I cannot remember a third of what lay tumbled upon the deck or hung against the bulkhead. So far as my knowledge of costume went, every article pointed to the date which I had fixed upon for this vessel. I swept the huddle of things with my foot into a corner, and, lifting the lids of the boxes, saw more clothes, some books, a collection of small arms, a couple of quadrants, and sundry rolls of paper which proved to be charts of the islands of the Antilles and the western South American coast very ill-digested. There were no papers of any kind to determine the vessel's character, nor journal to acquaint me with her story. I was tired in my limbs, rather than sleepy, and I went to the cook-room to warm myself at the fire and get me some supper, meaning to sit there till the fire died out, and then go rest. But when I put my knife to the ham, I found it as hard frozen as when I first met with it. So with the cheese, and this, though there had been a fire burning for hours. I put the things into the oven to thaw as before, and sitting down, fell very pensive over the severity of cold, which had the power to freeze within a yard or two of the furnace. To be sure, the fire by my absence had shrunk, and the sliding door being open admitted the cold of the cabin, but the consideration was, how was I to resist the killing enfoldment of this atmosphere? I had slept in the boat, it is true, and was none the worse, and now I was under shelter with the heat of a plentiful bellyful of meat and liquor to warm me. But if the wine and ham and cheese froze in an air in which a fire had been burning, why not I, in my sleep, when there was no fire, and life beat weakly as it does in slumber? Those figures in the cabin were dismal warnings and assurances. They had been men, perhaps stouter and heartier in their day, than ever I was, but they had been frozen into stony images nevertheless, under cover, too, with the materials to make a fire and as much strong waters in their lazarette as would serve their schooner to float in. Well, thought I, after a spell of melancholy thinking, if I am to perish of cold, there's an end. It is preordained, and it is as easy as drowning, anyhow, and better than hanging and with that I pulled out the ham and found it soft enough to cut, finding philosophy, which, as the French cynic says, trumps over past and future ills, not so hard, because somehow I did not myself then particularly feel the cold. I mean, I was not, certainly, 
suffering here from that pain of frost which I had felt in the open boat. Having heartily supped, I brewed a pint of punch, and charging my pipe, sat smoking with my feet against the furnace. It was after eight o'clock by the watch which I was wearing. I knew by the humming noise that it was blowing a gale of wind outside, and from time to time the decks rattled to a heavy discharge of hail. All sounds were naturally much subdued to my ear by the ship lying in a hollow, and I being in her with the hatches closed. But this very faintness of uproar formed of itself a quality of mystery very pat to the ghastliness of my surroundings. It was like the notes of an elfin storm of necromantic imagination. It was hollow, weak, and terrifying, and it, and the thunder of the seas commingling, together with the rumbling blasts and shocks of splitting ice, disjointed as by an earthquake, loaded the inward silence with unearthly tones, which my lonely and quickened imagination readily furnished with syllables. The lantern diffused but a small light, and the flickering of the fire made a movement of shadows about me. I was separated from the great cabin where the figures were, by the little arms-room only, and the passage to it ran there in blackness. It strangely and importunately entered my head to conceive that though these men were frozen and stirless, they were not dead as corpses are, but as a stream whose current, checked by ice, will flow when the ice is melted. Might not life in them be suspended by the cold, not ended? There is a vitality in the seed, though it lies a dead thing in the hand. Those men are corpses to my eye. But, said I to myself, they may have the principles of life in them, which heat might call into being. Putrefaction is a natural law, but it is balked by frost, and just as decay is hindered by cold, might not the property of life be left unaffected in a body, though it should be numbed in marble form for fifty years? This was a terrible fancy to possess a man situated as I was. And so it worked in me that again and again I caught myself looking first forward, then aft, as though, heaven help me, my secret instincts foreboded that at any moment I should behold some form from the forecastle, or one of those figures in the cabin stalking in, and coming to my side and silently seating himself. I shod and pished and querulously asked of myself, what manner of English sailor was I to suffer such womanly terrors to visit me? But it would not do. I could not smoke. A coldness of the heart fell upon me, and set me trembling above any sort of shivers which the frost of the air had chased through me. And presently, a hollow creak sounding out of the hole, caused by some movement of the bed of ice in which the vessel lay, I was seized with a panic terror, and sprang to my feet, and, lantern in hand, made for the companion ladder with a prayer in me for the sight of a star. I durst not look at the figures, but setting the light down at the foot of the ladder, squeezed through the companion door on to the deck. My fear was a fever in its way. I did not feel the cold. There was no star to be seen, but the whiteness of the ice was flung out in a wild, strange glare by the blackness of the sky, and it made a light of its own. 
It was the most savage and terrible picture of solitude the invention of man can reach to. Yet I blessed it for the relief it gave to my ghost-enkindled imagination. No squall was then passing. The rocks rose up on either hand in a ghastly glimmer to the ebony of the heavens. The gale swept overhead in a wild, mad blending of whistlings, roarings, and cryings in many keys, falling on a sudden into a doleful wailing, then rising in a breath to the full fury of its concert. The sea thundered like the cannonading of an electric storm, and you would have said that the rending and crackling noises of the ice were responses to the crashing blows of the balls of the shadow-hidden ordnance. But the scene, the uproar, the voices of the wind were real, a better cordial to my spirits than a gallon of the mellowest vintage below. And, presently, when the cold was beginning to pierce me, my courage was so much better for this excursion into the hoarse and black and gleaming realities of the night, that my heart beat at its usual measure as I passed through the hatch and went again to the cook-room. I was, however, sure that if I sat here long, listening and thinking, fear would return. A small fire still burned. I put a saucepan on it, and popped in a piece of fresh-water ice. But on handling the brandy I found it hard set. The heat of the oven was not sufficiently great to thaw me a dram. So, to save further trouble in this way, I took the chopper, and at one blow split open the jar, and then there lay before me the solid body of the brandy, from which I chipped off as much as I needed, and thus procured a hot and animating draught. Raking out the fire, I picked up the lantern and was about to go, then halted, considering whether I should not stow the frozen provisions away. It was a natural thought, seeing how precious food was to me, but alas, it mattered not where they lay. They were as secure here as if they were snugly hidden in the bottom of the hold. It was the white realm of death. If ever a rat had crawled in this ship, it was, in its hiding-place, as stiff and idle as the frozen vessel. So I let the lump of brandy, the ice, ham, and so forth rest where they were, and went to the cabin I had chosen, involuntarily peeping at the figures as I passed, and hurrying the faster because of the grim and terrifying liveliness put into the man who sat starting from the table by the swing of the lantern in my hand. I shut the door and hung the lantern near the cot, having the flint in a box in my pocket. There was, indeed, an abundance of candles in the vessel. Nevertheless, it was my business to husband them with the utmost niggardliness. How long I was to be imprisoned here, if indeed I was ever to be delivered, providence alone knew, and a run short of candles would add to the terrors of my existence by forcing me either to open the hatches and ports for light, and so filling the ship with the deadly air outside, or living in darkness. There were a cloak and a coat in the cot, but they would not suffice. The fine cloak I had taken from the man on the rocks was on deck, and till now I had forgotten it. There was, however, plenty of apparel in the corner to serve as wraps, and having chosen enough to smother me, I vaulted into the cot and so covered myself that the clothes were above the level of the sides of the cot. I left the lantern burning whilst I made sure my bed was all right, and lay musing, feeling extremely melancholy. 
The hardest part was the thought of those two men watching in the cabin. The most fantastic alarms possessed me. Suppose their ghosts came into the ship at midnight, and entering their bodies quickened them into waking. Suppose they were in the condition of cataleptics, sensible of what passed around them, but paralyzed to the motionlessness and seeming insensibility of death. Then the very garments under which I lay were of a proper kind to keep a man in my situation quaking. My imagination went to work to tell me to whom they had belonged, the bloody ends their owners had met at the hands of the miscreants who despoiled them. I caught myself listening, and there was enough to hear, too, what with the subdued roaring of the wind, the splintering of the ice, the occasional creaking, not unlike a heavy-booted tread, of the fabric of the schooner, to the blasts of the gale against her masts, or to the movement in the bed on which she reposed. But plain sense came to my rescue at last. I resolved to have no more of these night fears, so, blowing out the candle, I put my head on the coat that formed my pillow, resolutely kept my eyes shut, and after a while fell asleep. End of chapter 12